How we behave toward other people reveals what we truly believe about God. Let me say that again. How we behave toward other people reveals what we truly believe about God. In case you missed it, let me say it a third time. How we behave toward other people reveals what we truly believe about our God. It was Warren Wiersbe who said we really only believe as much of the Bible as we practice. So with that being stated, beloved, let me ask you this morning, how much of the Bible do you really believe? Today we continue our study the book of James. I invite you to take a Bible, turn to James chapter 2. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. I want to read in your hearing James chapter 2 verses 1 to 13. James chapter 2, I'll begin at verse 1, I'll conclude at verse 13. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding, and the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. James begins with a command. Don't show favoritism. The word favoritism can also be rendered partiality. So in other words, he's telling the church, don't play favorites. Don't extend preferential treatment to certain individuals. When I hear that command, the initial question is, why not? Because certainly, there are naturally people that I am drawn to. And conversely, There are some people who, just quite frankly, I don't like. I don't think I'm alone in this. I think that all of us have individuals that we are naturally drawn to. 
They are some of our favorites. We like them. They're our besties. We uh, have things in common with them. We are drawn to certain individuals. And then there are other people that we just don't like. Some days, I don't like some of my neighbors. I don't like some of my cousins. There are some days I don't like some teachers. I don't like some preachers. I don't like some teams. There are some days I don't like some church members. Not from this congregation, of course. (laughs) But James tells us that we ought not to show favoritism. I've told you before that probably the first theologian I ever met was my mother. My mom would routinely tell me, now you don't have to like everybody, but you do have to love everybody. And I remember thinking to myself, mom, if I don't like them, chances are I probably don't love them. James is very wise because James accurately connects this command to the character of God. The reason we are not to show partiality is because God doesn't show partiality. The reason we are not to play favorites is because God doesn't play favorites. He begins the line by saying, uh, dear brothers, as believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. The command is connected to the character of Christ. And you and I know that Jesus is God in the flesh. He's not another God, a creation of God, a lesser God. He is fully God. Jesus is God in the flesh. So James is connecting this command to the character of God. We are not to show favoritism because God doesn't show favoritism. This is a common theme all throughout the Bible. As early as the book of Deuteronomy, we are told that God shows no favoritism. And he doesn't accept any bribes. In other words, ours is a God who cannot be bought off. He cannot be persuaded by our acts or by our extravagance unto him. He does not show favoritism. In the book of Proverbs, we are told that God does not show favoritism. Therefore, when it comes to judging, as in court cases, it is not good to show partiality. Friend, that is the bedrock and the basis of every fair judicial system that's ever existed in world civilization. When the apostle Peter realized his own racism and understood that Gentile individuals were coming to faith in Christ at the same rate as Jewish believers were coming to faith in Christ, It is Peter who says in Acts chapter 10, now I know that God shows no partiality, but he accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. It's the apostle Paul in Romans chapter two, who says that God shows no partiality for both Jew and Gentile alike are sinners condemned under the law of God. In Ephesians chapter six, The apostle reminds us that both the master and the servant are equal in the eyes of God. Why? Because God shows no favoritism. 
in a relationship that you and I can liken to an employer, to an employee, a servant and his master, that there is no favoritism in the eyes of God. There may be rank and responsibility uh, in the world, but in the church, the master and his servant are equal in the sight of God. Why? Because he shows no favoritism. The command is linked to the character of God. We are not to play favorites because God doesn't play favorites. God doesn't have favorite children. We know some earthly fathers and mothers who have favorite children. They give preferential treatment to this child as opposed to this other child, but that's not the case with our God. Our God is a father who loves all of his children equally. He loves all of his children at the same level. And so God does not show favoritism. When you stop and allow this to sink in, you must realize that when it comes to equality, that real, genuine equality is solely and sufficiently rooted in Christianity. There is no political pundit in America that will tell you that. There is no politician in America that will tell you that. But I'm glad you came here today to hear the truth. Because the truth of the matter is this. That real, genuine, authentic equality is solely and sufficiently rooted in Christianity. Because our God shows no favoritism. It could be said like this. That from God's perspective, he knows that all people are equally made in the image of God. All people loved by the Lord. No one a greater sinner than me or you. And all people worthy of the blood of Jesus Christ being applied unto their life. The reason and the basis for that statement is because God shows no partiality. Every person ever created is an image bearer. Every person loved by God. Every person is equally sinful in the eyes of God. No one more sinful than anybody else. And people are worthy of hearing the good news of the gospel and having the blood of Jesus Christ being applied to their life. So that if you are in Christ, that those of us who are in Christ, we are equally loved, equally forgiven, equally saved, both now and forevermore. In the New Testament, there are three words that communicate the idea of favoritism or partiality. What's interesting is that all three of those words in the first century are only used in Christian literature. And it's only used in connection to showing how our God does not show favoritism. That's why I say that real genuine equality can only be found and rooted in the reality of Christianity. Because ours is an understanding that our God does not play favorites. He does not give preferential treatment to individuals based on this or that. But he is a God who does not show favoritism. I realize that when it comes to this topic of favoritism, that's not really something that you think much about. I dare say that nobody woke up this morning and said to themselves, I really hope that the pastor preaches on the topic of favoritism. Because most of us, when it comes to this idea of partiality, we fall in one of two camps. Either number one, we think to ourselves, I'm not guilty of favoritism. Or, we fall in the camp that says, 
I readily know that I play favorites, but it's not that big of a deal. It's at this moment that James, that pesky pastor, gives us a case study. He says, let's imagine that a rich man wearing a gold ring and fancy clothes comes into your worship service. And if you say to him, please have the best seat in the house. And then right behind him is a poor man in shabby clothes. And might I add, has a very foul stench. And if that poor man comes in and you say to him, just stand over in the corner, get lost, get out of my face, or sit on the floor so you can be my footstool and you treat him as subhuman, have you not discriminated? And you become a judge with evil thoughts. The reality is that all of us have a propensity to place value and worth upon every person that we see. We do this rather quickly. In a 2018 article in Forbes magazine, it touted that people form first impressions in seven seconds or less. It only takes a few seconds to form a first impression. Now, of course, because it was in Forbes magazine, it comes from the angle of it only takes a customer less than seven seconds to evaluate you as a company. But if that's true in business, I think it's also true just generally in life that people are quick to form a first impression. And once that first impression is formed, it is difficult for us to relinquish it. And from that first impression, that's how we interact with people for years to come. It only takes a few seconds to form a first impression. Why? Because all the while, we are placing value and worth upon every person that we see, every person we interact with in the marketplace, at the grocery store, driving down the road, as we enter the building of the church, as we go to the ball field, we are constantly gauging the worth and value of other people that cross our path. It has long been said that we ought to love people and use money. But the reality is we love money and we use people. We see them as a commodity. We we see them as something of worth or value. And the way we rate people depends on two things, I think. Number one, we highly value people that are like us. And we highly value people who we perceive can help us. So if we like the person, if they're kind of like us, whether they look like us, act like us, vote like us, talk like us, walk like us, cheer like us, uh, think like us, if we like them and they like us, if they are like us, then we give a greater value to their worth in life. Or if we think that somehow By me liking that person, that person can help me advance my cause, help me advance my agenda, whatever that agenda may be, whatever that cause may be. But if we look at a person and it's somebody that is different than us, different in a host of ways, doesn't look like us, doesn't talk like us, doesn't think like us, doesn't have the same values that we have, if they're totally different, if they're not like us, then we have a tendency to devalue them and If we perceive that that person really can't help us 
move the ball down the field, if that person can't help us advance our cause, our reputation, our agenda, we have no time for them. Isn't that exactly the scenario that James describes? The early church salivated over the fact that a rich man came into their worship service. Why? Because that rich man had what the early church wanted. The rich man had cultural currency. The rich man had cash. The rich man had resources. The rich man had a reputation. A reputation to be a mover and a shaker. Somebody to get things done. Somebody that would be treated preferentially. So when the rich man comes in, oh, they salivate. They say, here, take the choicest seat. But then right behind him is a poor man in shabby clothes. The church thinks to itself, we've got enough poor people. We've got enough people in shabby clothes. We've got enough stinky people. We don't really care if more stinky people come in. But listen, if you're a stinky person and a poor person, just go stand in the corner or you can be my footstool. Uh, but, but just don't, don't, don't bother me because I've got to acquiesce to the rich man. You say, oh, well, we wouldn't do that. Friend, this case study that James describes in chapter 2 has been replayed over and over and over for 2,000 years in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ more than we would ever want to admit. If a popular person, a person of swag, a person of prominence, a person of culture, a person with great wealth came walking and into this sanctuary and somebody who had absolutely nothing came walking into this sanctuary, who would you gravitate towards? James says to the church, aren't you gravitating to the person who is exploiting you and taking you to court and in the process bribing the judge to win the court case and all the while slandering the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? I think that this case study has been replicated far too many times. Five years ago, I went with my son Nathan to Washington, D.C. It was the fifth grade annual trip to the Capitol. I got to be honest with you, I loved the experience. It was phenomenal. At the end of the week, on our way back to Alabama, we went through Colonial Williamsburg, Virginia. I don't know if you've ever been to Colonial Williamsburg, but as somebody who was a history major in college and somebody who just has an affinity towards the colonial period of the American history, I was like a kid in a candy store. I loved it. I wanted to go in every single store, every single shop, even every single tavern. Can I say that in a Baptist church? I wanted to go in every single establishment up and down that street. At the end of that colonial street stands Bruton Parish. It's a beautiful Episcopalian church. And I was probably the last one to leave that church. The kids walked in, they looked around, said, yep, it's a church, and they walked out. But I'm there, and I'm studying everything. I'm looking all around. I'm fascinated with it. I'm fascinated uh, partly because there is an exact replica of Bruton Parish, no more than 30 miles from here, an American village in Montevallo. That's Bruton Parish. It's the very same one. And as I'm walking up and down those sacred aisles of that 
church in Virginia, I noticed that there are boxes of seats, boxes of pews. Some boxes are bigger than other boxes. Some could accommodate a larger family. Others could accommodate a smaller family. And I noticed that outside that box, there was a nameplate with the name of a family inscribed on it. I asked the tour guide, tell me about that. And they said, well, uh, these are the, uh, the ancient names, the ancient families. And it was the custom in the colonial days that, um, that these seats were purchased by families. So you actually bought your seat in church. The bigger boxes that were located at the front, I'm assuming, were more valuable. But even the cheap seats in the back, they still had nameplates on them as well. And I looked up and down those aisles and I saw family after family. That's not to say that the rich people always came to church. But it is to say that whenever the rich people always came to church, they sat up front. They wanted to be there, have the best seat for the big services and the great ceremonies. As I tried to process what I was seeing, there were a few thoughts that came through my mind. The first thought was this, I think there's something not right about this. My second thought was, this sure is a good way to make budget. (laughs) And before I could have my third thought, which was, I wonder if this would fly at First Baptist Pelham, I remember James chapter 2. And I said, this is exactly what James is talking about. And James is speaking in the first century, and this happened in the 18th century. But this is exactly what James is talking about. About the fact that the rich people were able to uh, have their influence, and they were able to purchase the best seats in the sanctuary. And then it dawned on me that what the real issue is, is a lack of of understanding of the gospel. If we understand the gospel, then we know that the gospel breaks down every man-made barrier and division. If you drill deeper into James chapter two, why James is saying that this issue of favoritism and partiality is a big deal, that if it's not corrected, it could wreck the church. The reason James is writing about this in chapter two of this letter is because he knows that this is all about the gospel. Because if you understand the gospel, you know that the gospel must break down every human man-made barrier. This morning, I want to try to prove that because I'm not convinced that you're convinced that my statement is true. So this morning, I want to tell you that the gospel, when it takes root, it removes racism. It removes classism. It removes sexism. The gospel must remove racism. Historically, in this great country, we've had two great awakenings. And racism has survived both of them. My father in the ministry is Robert Smith Jr. And I've heard Dr. Smith remind numerous congregations, 
White people are racist. Black people are racist. Red people are racist. Brown people are racist. All people are racist. Racism is not a skin problem. Racism is a sin problem. When you and I perceive our race, whatever our race may be, when we perceive our race as somehow superior to another race, or if we look upon another race that is different than ours as inferior unto us, friend, that is racism. And let me remind you that from God's perspective, all people of every race equally made in the image of God, loved by the Lord, no one group more sinful than me or you and people as creations of God worthy of the blood of Christ being applied under their life. It was early in ministry. I overheard a conversation where a man was verbally belittling an entire race of people. Realizing that I was there in the conversation, he then turned to me and said, but preacher, I want you to know I'm not racist. And I thought to myself, are you trying to convince me or trying to convince yourself that you're not racist? He said, preacher, I am not racist. And friend, I will never forget what he told me next. He said, racism is prejudice without cause. And I have sufficient cause to feel the way I feel. There was something inside of me that knew there was something faulty about his premise. But I didn't quite know what to say because I was new in ministry. I was young, didn't know quite how to handle it. Today, if I could talk to that brother, what I would say to him, what I would caution him about is don't let your preference become your prejudice. Just because you might have a handful of difficult life experiences with certain people, that does not mean that the entire race is that way. For example, I have personally known some lazy, deadbeat rednecks, but I'm not going to devalue or dehuman the entire Caucasian race. We have to be careful, friend, because some of us have been raised with generational racism. And today, there may be more than a few who need to allow the gospel to take root. Because when the gospel takes roots, it removes racism. And God can do it. Because of racist tendencies and racist thoughts, some of us have been robbed and fogged in our thoughts, in our jokes, in our attitudes, and even in our acquaintances with other people just because of the color of somebody's skin. Beloved, just look around the room. We've got a mighty long way to go in order for this faith family to reflect the ethnicity of our community, and the ethnicity of the kingdom of God. I am passionate about this because I am convinced that when racism takes root, it obliterates every man-made division. 
And it has long been said that the 11 o'clock hour on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in American Christianity and in American culture. And I know you're sitting there thinking, well, we don't worship at 11. We worship at 9, 15 and 10, 45. But you know exactly what they're talking about. And we cannot hide behind the notion, well, they, whoever they may be, they just don't want to come here. It's their problem. Friend, all I'm saying this morning is that it may not be all their problem. The gospel removes racism. The gospel also removes classism. I mean, here in James chapter 2 is a classic example of classism. The upper class and the middle class and the lower class. The upper class rich man was exploiting the middle class of the church, taking them to court and and, and slandering the name of Christ. And all the while, the middle class looking down on the poor people because they're in shabby clothes and they stink really bad. Classism. The way classism is corrected is not by Congress. Can I say that again? The way classism is corrected is not by a congressional mandate. The answer is not the redistribution of wealth. Because the redistribution of wealth is based on a faulty premise that rich people get rich in crooked ways. And it's also based on the faulty premise that everything is completely stacked against some people. And it's also a faulty premise that some people are just too lazy to work. All of those premises are faulty and they cannot carry the weight of the argument that politicians and people try to place upon them. The answer to classism is revival. Because when revival sweeps through a nation... The gospel not only grabs a hold of the heart, but also grabs a hold of the wallet. So that we know and believe we've been blessed to be a blessing. So if we have the means to help someone and we see a person in need, because of the gospel of generosity, that God has been generous towards us, so we are generous towards others, then we help others that come along our path. The answer is revival. The answer is the gospel taking root. Because generosity cannot be coerced. If generosity is coerced, it's no longer generosity. You just call it a tax. That's all it is. Y'all didn't get that. I thought the early service didn't get it either. But when generosity is coerced, it's not generosity. It's nothing more than a tax. So the answer does not come from Congress. The answer actually comes from Christ. Because when the gospel gets a hold of me and when the gospel gets a hold of you, you realize you've been blessed to be a blessing to somebody else. So when the gospel takes root, classism is corrected. The gospel also removes sexism. There is not one gender that is superior to the other gender. God made them male and female when he created them. I want to stop right there. And I just want to say lovingly, redemptively, and biblically, there are only two genders. Male 
and female. They're not more than that. The Bible says that God made them male and female. When it verbalizes it that way, this is not a both and, it's an either or. A person is either made male or female. And God never makes a mistake. Never. Church, I want you to hear the heaviness of my heart today. Because in no way am I being snarky. In no way am I trying to be comical. But I mean from the depths of my soul that one of the most vile, vicious attacks and tricks of the adversary is gender confusion. One of the most vicious tricks of the adversary is gender confusion. Where there are people who are made in the image of God. People loved by the Lord. People that, yes, are sinful, but no more sinful than me or you. And people who are worth hearing the gospel and worth responding so that the blood of Christ can be applied to their life. These individuals, all people, need to hear the good news of the gospel. And the adversary has tricked far too many people by confusing them with their gender. Our God is not a God of confusion or chaos. He made them male and female. When he created them. So we need to know that when the gospel takes root. Sexism is removed. So I need to go one step further. And I need to tell you. That where the gospel resides. The gospel cannot coexist. With feminism. And male chauvinism. Because those are two extremes. Where feminism says that. One gender is better than the other. Male chauvinism says that one gender is better than the other. When the gospel takes root, there cannot be feminism and male chauvinism. It cannot coexist because when the gospel takes root, it removes sexism. Let's be very clear. That the Bible says that men are women, men and women are equally made in the image of God. Equal value. Equal worth. The Bible does speak of different roles and responsibilities for a man or a woman. We understand this as complementarianism. And at the foundation of complementarianism is this understanding that men and women are made equal in the eyes of God. Friend, when the gospel takes root, Racism is removed. Classism is removed. Sexism is removed. Any and all barriers that man makes are gone. So the reality is, uh, we play favorites. We play favorites with those who uh, are like us. We play favorites with those who can help us along the way. Those who are different than us, we sometimes devalue or even dehumanize. So what's the solution? The solution comes in our passage in verse 8. Those who obey the royal law of God, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. One day Jesus was approached by a hotshot lawyer. This lawyer was fresh out of law school, just passed the bar exam. He goes up to the rabbi and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, ironically, takes the lawyer right back to the law. How do you read it? Now, the lawyer was rather astute. He was a good lawyer. 
He understood that Jesus had already addressed this issue earlier in his ministry. So he regurgitated what Jesus had said. Jesus, you spoke earlier and you said that all the law and the prophets can hang on two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is likened unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus looked at the hotshot lawyer and said, you're right. Do both those and you'll live. He understood what it meant to love God with all the stuff that was inside of him. He thought he had no problem there. But loving neighbor as self, now that was problematic. So the lawyer wanted to clarify, who do I have to love? Who can be my favorites? Who can be individuals that I have to give the time of day to, have to serve, have to minister, have to like, have to love? Who is my neighbor? Because certainly, Jesus, you don't expect me to be neighborly to everybody. So who is my neighbor? In response, Jesus told one of those well-spun stories. On this occasion, it's that familiar story called the Good Samaritan. There was a Jewish man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell into the hands of thugs. They beat him, robbed him, stripped him, left him half dead in the middle of the road. Not long after that, a Jewish priest came by, and then later a Jewish Levite came by. But neither the priest nor the Levite stopped to get their hands dirty in this bloody mess of ministry. So they crossed the street and passed by on the other side. Why? They had other places to go and other things to do. It's a busy time. It's the first century for crying out loud. I mean, everybody is hustling and bustling, constantly on the go. But Jesus makes the most unlikely of heroes. A Samaritan came by. Now, you need to know that Jews and Samaritans hated each other. They despised each other. It was a two-way street. Jews hated Samaritans. Samaritans hated Jews. This has been generational. They've been brought up with animosity towards anybody who was Jewish, anybody who was Samaritan. And in Jesus' story, Jesus makes the most unlikely candidate the hero. The Samaritan stops and takes pity. He gets his hands dirty. He bandaged that man's wounds. He picked him up. Put him on his own beast of burden. This man's blood got on the Samaritan. The Samaritan led the Jewish man uh, into Jericho, put him into an inn all night long, watched him. The next morning gave two silver coins to the innkeeper, more than enough to cover the expenses. And then he said, in a very generous way, if you incur more expenses, you know I'm good for it when I pass back through. Jesus now looking at the hotshot lawyer, who's dumbfounded, jaw dropped. Jesus said, who acted neighborly? The man couldn't even say Samaritan. He had been brought up not to say the word. That's the nasty S word that we don't say in our household. Samaritan. You don't say that. He couldn't even say the word. The one who had mercy he said. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Jesus made the Samaritan the hero of the story. Put yourself in the story. You're the one who's bloody and beaten, robbed, laying half dead. Who's the most unlikely person to come and help you? Is it an Alabama fan that actually helps an Auburn fan? Is it a Democrat that actually helps a Republican? Is it a 
white man helped by a black woman? Is it a conservative Christian lying in the road being helped by someone from the LGBTQ community? Who is the most unlikely person in your culture to help you? That's the power of this story. Jesus chooses the most unlikely of candidates. This is why the hotshot lawyer is dumbfounded. He doesn't know quite what to say. Who was neighborly? The one who had mercy. Jesus said, go and do likewise. Your neighbor is anybody who has a need that you're in a position to meet. That's your neighbor. Your neighbor has nothing to do with geography, everything to do with opportunity. Let me say that again. Your neighbor has nothing to do with geography and everything to do with opportunity. Your neighbor is anybody who has a need that you're in a position to meet. That's your neighbor. Jesus said uh, in, in Luke chapter 10, go and do likewise. James picks up on the message of big brother Jesus. Because when you and I discriminate our kindness based upon how much we like somebody, how we have been favorites with somebody, then we break the law of God. And James quickly reminds us, all you have to do is break the law once to be a lawbreaker. I mean, God says, do not commit adultery. He also says, do not murder. If you don't commit adultery, but you do murder, you're still a lawbreaker. And the fact that all of us are lawbreakers is evidence that we are capable of breaking all of God's laws. Please don't ever say, I could never do that. You hear something that somebody does, it's so vile, it's so despicable. They said something, they did something, they treated somebody a certain way. And I've heard numerous well-intentioned people who say, I could never do that. And I always kind of back away. Because I think to myself, yeah, I could. My heart is that twisted. I am that deceptive. I am that sinful. And I'm just like you. We're capable. The fact that we are a lawbreaker, the fact that we've broken one law is sufficient evidence that we are capable of breaking all of them. So James tells the church, speak and act with mercy. How do you battle this favoritism issue? How do you battle the partiality that takes up residence in your heart? How do you battle how you like some people and don't like other people and why you like somebody or why you don't like somebody else? It's just because of a prejudice, a prejudice in your heart. How do you battle that? You battle it with mercy. Here's the summary of the entire sermon. I'm going to try to take a stab at it in one sentence. And the one sentence is this. The measure of mercy that you have received from God ought to reflect the measure of mercy that you show to others. The measure of mercy that you received from God ought to be proportional to the measure of mercy you reflect unto others. Has God been merciful to you? Has God been good to you? Has God been gracious to you? Can I just take you to the mercy tree to remind you just how good God has been to you. 
That 2,000 years ago, the God-man stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth. He lived a perfect life. He died on Calvary's hill. He hung to make you holy. All of your sin, all of your racism, all of my racism, all of our prejudice, all of our blemishes, everything was laid upon Jesus. And Jesus took all the condemnation upon himself. And that Jesus died in our stead. He hung to make us holy. He died there so that we might live. His dead body was taken off the cross and it was placed into a borrowed tomb. And on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. And that gives evidence that mercy always triumphs judgment. If you're here today and you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want you to pray what the publican prayed in the temple. Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. I realize I'm talking to a lot of the redeemed. And if you are the redeemed, maybe this morning you need to pray this very same prayer. Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Maybe the Holy Spirit has brought to your attention something that you've tried to bury and and push away and say, I'm not guilty of that. Whether it's racism or classism or sexism or some other ism. And maybe over these moments, God has brought that to the forefront of your mind. Friend, Before you walk out of here, please walk down here. Before you walk out of here, please walk down here. Cast all your sin upon the Lord. And say, Lord Jesus, please be merciful unto me, a sinner. Because I'm here to tell you that when we go to God in faith, he always responds with massive mercy. Because mercy always triumphs over judgment. Heavenly Father, we give you this invitation. We pray that you will move in our midst. And Father, this tough lesson, tough teaching, we pray um, will be lodged in fertile ground. Help people to respond in obedience unto you. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.